This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. And I'm Joe Newton. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Philip Williams. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Could you give our listeners a little background, or could you introduce yourself officially? I, uh, as Saul has said, I'm Philip Williams, and my colleagues and associates also uh, reference to me as Dr. Phil. And as I was just sharing with them, that oftentimes that creates a great deal of laughter. And I make <laughs> ready the statement that my mother named me Phil, and Howard University conferred upon me a doctorate degree. So. Hence, I have that name, but I just can't shake it, but it is who I am. Uh, I've been in ministry, it seems like, all of my life. Um, As early as age six, I can recall being in a ministry activity within our church. Um, After early age, my grandfather, who was my closest friend, mentored me in a very special way, leading me in the direction of Christian ministry. Over the years, uh, life and life circumstances and the call of God became very profound on my life and in my life that I could do nothing but accept his directions through pastoral ministry, through church planting, through multi-site developing. uh, And an interesting twist happened in my life in 1997. From 1997 to 2010, I had 13 family members to die. And the last of those was my mother, who was in hospice. And uh, my visits to her often led to her redirecting my visit time to other patients instead of giving it to her. Uh, That I had a problem with, but she made sure that I did it anyway. And so I would see many who were there without family and associates to accompany them in their time of transition Uh, I could not shake the fact that God had been saying to me all of my life that hospice should be where I should be. But at my mother's transitioning, I knew without a shadow of a doubt, I couldn't go back to doing anything else but hospice. And hence, um, I've um, taken the trail of hospice, and it is an exciting venture. It is life in the moment. Thank you for such an amazing overview. Now we'll go back and unpack it. (laughs) Where did you grow up? I grew up in the great state of Kentucky uh, in my young childhood. Uh, In my teen years, it was in the state of Ohio, Toledo, Ohio, in specific, uh, into Lorain, Ohio. That was my formative years. Now, as a a, a middle-aged teenager, I spent time growing up in Europe. How did that arrange? How did you happen to do that? Well, it wasn't by choice. Um, Uncle Sam says, I want you. I got you. And, yeah, and I was drafted into the U.S. Army. Uh, was 
thought I would be going to Vietnam. However, my brother had jumped and that jump was fatal. Hence, I went to Germany and spent approximately eight years in Germany, uh, moving from a uniformed soldier to a non-uniformed soldier working in covert operations uh, and pretty much blending into the population. In my formative years as a teenager, a young adult, was around Europe as a whole. How old were you when you joined the military? 19. So you spoke about your brother briefly. Uh, were you implying that your brother died? Absolutely, absolutely. They, um, the jump that they made was not a well-orchestrated situation, but they were, the number of them were wiped out. They were killed, yes. Could you describe the jump for our listeners? In the war zone, this was an airborne unit, and the airborne unit was to jump into an area to secure that area to ward off the attack of the Vietnamese on the U.S. soldier. So he was in so, Vietnam then? Your brother absolutely. was in Vietnam? Okay. Absolutely. Uh, and you managed to uh, find your way to, to Europe. Now, did you make a career of the military? I made a, a career of it. Uh, initially, my thoughts were to get in and out. Hence, I made that a strategic plan. But as I stated, my uh, growing up was in Europe, and my first assignment was in a place called Schweinfurt, Germany. And in Schweinfurt, Germany, my desires were to uh, do my two to three years, get back to the continental U.S., and let it go. However, uh, at that stage, I was in uniform as a private, private first class, and the, um, the unit that I was in had what they call guard mount, where the soldiers would protect ammunition fields and walk around tanks uh, in the middle of the night, etc. And at each one of those, it was interesting. They had what they, they had called a guard mount where the guards would go to be inspected before they would go out on their duty. However, if your uniform was immaculate, if you answered all of the key questions, you didn't have to go out on guard mount. So I never really went out on guard mount because mm. I made sure that I spit shined the shoes, <laughs> starched the shirts, and then rehearsed all the questions. And interestingly, there was a uh, army captain who was the captain of the guard, who would observe me. And he stated to me, and as a matter of fact, his name was Fabian. Some names you just don't forget in life. Mm. He says to me, young man, you're a pretty sharp guy. You've got a lot going for you. Uh, why are you in the infantry? I said, I was drafted into the infantry. He says, well, you're going places. He says, I want to talk to you about what we call special services. Uh, he says, do you have any special talents? And of course, I was a martial artist, second degree black belt at that time. And he talked about doing demonstrations around the uh, local area and then around Germany. Uh, I would come back to my unit on, on certain days, but majority of my time was out doing martial arts as opposed to the combat training. Hmm. Uh, from, from that particular point on, things began to escalate in my, my career. Uh, I had the opportunity after doing the special services training to get cross-trained and tested uh, in another in 
field within, they call it MOS, military occupational status uh, within the army. And uh, that was to be a special agent, criminal investigator. Uh, an interesting event on the day that I was being interviewed by the board to become an agent, I received a telephone call from the continental US that was from my, doc, my mother's doctor, uh, sharing with me that my mother was at the hospital and she had a uh, cancerous tumor on her lower uh, backside of her brain. And um, they wanted to make sure that I knew that I had the availability to the Red Cross to get back to the continental US uh, if I needed to, to do so. So I was in the middle of my interview to become an agent. And I went back to the interview and I continued the interview. And one of the persons on the board says, if I might ask, uh, was that call a very serious call? We understood it came from the continental US. And I explained to them what it was. And they said, wow, we could not have sat there and gone through what you went through, uh, knowing the circumstances that you knew of. And I'm saying to myself, you don't know who I know. <laughs> and, and so um, it was from there, my relationships within the inner circles of the uh, military community, the uh, secretaries of the army and secretaries of defense, et cetera, all of that began to reshape my, my life uh, after the investigative um, interview. I was going to say, the, the military seems to have uh, done a great deal of formulation in your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, like I said, I was not a uniform, but I was a um, military officer. And since you say that this is not being videoed out, I'm going to share with you a little bit. <laughs> yes. This, this is a photo. Do you recognize the guy in the center of that? Oh, Mr. Yeah, of course. Dick Cheney, yes. <laughs> and, and the guy on his right shoulder there, left shoulder, that's me. Mm. On his left shoulder. The, yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, just a little bit. Yeah, that, that military did reshape my life into the capacity of being a special agent and uh, dignitary protection traveling the world, protecting U.S. Uh, leaders. Uh, and so I had the good privilege of uh, protecting uh, Dick Cheney, Casper Weinberger, Frank Carlucci. Uh, during the course of the Bush Reagan administration, of course, that was Cap Weinberger. Um, so God has blessed me and kept me and protected as I would travel, uh, after 20 years of doing that. Uh, and even at the same time, I was doing this, so to speak, <laughs> uh, uh, ministering around the world, uh, in a covert status, but yet over. Man, you, <laughs> you're quite a unique, uh, <laughs> Unique person there, but the chaplain in me cannot proceed until uh, you were in the middle of an interview and your mom was, you get a news that your mom, you know, her situation is not good. Mm -hmm. Did you come back to the U.S. after that? I did not come back. I um, stayed for another month. We were in dialogue with the physician uh, as things were progressing with her surgical procedure. Um, spoke with her briefly. Uh, she did not want me to come back. She wanted me to stay and do what I needed to be doing, which is a pretty similar, as I reflect on that right now, it's a similar statement that was made to me by my father just before his death. Uh, 
you continue to do what it is that you have been called to do there. And so I did so. Uh, but then I went back on what they call uh, leave uh, 30 days back to the continental US and I spent time with her and helped nurture her back to her health. So let's go to Dr. Phil's life lessons. <laughs> <laughs> Up to this point of the conversation, what did you learn about life and about yourself? I learned to depend on the Lord more than ever in every situation. I became very reflective of my upbringing, especially my childhood, where I grew by listening to my elders, listening to my grandfather, my uncles, coming out of a very churchy, if you will, uh, family. My great-great-grandfather was a church planter. I only discovered him being a church planter after having started 15 churches. Uh, but listening and looking at the lives of the elders, listening to them, uh, was one of the first things I had learned. And out of that, messages would come to me uh, and help me through whatever situation that I was in. But when I look at the trials and tribulations in those time periods, I see that staying personally in a relationship with God on a daily basis made every difference in the world uh, because it was a feeling that was needed based on the environment that I was in. I needed to continually be filled, and as Paul would say, be being filled with the word of God, which was my strength. Did you have a certain chaplain in the military that you befriended or became important to you? Because it sounds like you'd been a perfect candidate for a, a military chaplain to me. You know, I, I did not. And that's probably because of the capacity that I was in. Okay. And uh, not being able to come to surface sometimes. Uh, the investigation world was different. Yeah. Uh, definitely not filled with a lot of chaplains. He filled with uh, filled with a lot of <laughs> lot of verbiage and things that would not even be suitable for this broadcast. Um, <laughs> gotcha. So so I, I I did not run into a, a lot of chaplains. Um, ran into some hard nosed and some very sharp military types. And I talked about the name Fabian of that uh, army captain that I had met in, in Germany in my first assignment. My very first step off of the bus at the induction station into the army, I run across a guy whose name was Tabazola. <laughs> and that's 19, 1971. I remember Tabazola's name because I hopped off the bus and I stepped on his spit shine shoe. He was a drill sergeant. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> My life was shaped then and reshaped, but I learned again from the elders, uh, give due respect. And I said, excuse me, sir. And he says to me, well, I want you to push away Fort Campbell, and then I'll excuse you. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what's he talking about, push away Fort Campbell? So he invited his assistant drill instructor to demonstrate to me what he meant. And that meant to fall to the ground and start doing push-ups. And every time that I saw him in basic training, he said to me, push Fort Campbell away until I pretty much fell flat on my face. So... Remembering the words of the elders, remembering those who have given me sound instruction, and it's just been an, an awesome journey. 
an awesome journey. With that, we'll take a little break. We will continue our conversation with Dr. Philip Williams, and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. You're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, and we continue our conversation with Dr. Phil. Along your journey in the military, you ended up uh, protecting some American dignitaries. Could you explain more about that and how that impacted your life? Absolutely. Uh, as I stated, that I was in an interview in West Germany, a place specific, it was called Heidelberg. Um, and in Heidelberg, uh, with the headquarters of the United States Army Criminal Investigations Division in Europe. Uh, I was going to become an agent through that interview process. Out of that, I was successful in becoming uh, an agent, a CID agent, and the CID agents have a multifaceted role uh, within the defense and within the U.S. government. Some of us are pulled out from routine investigations into specialties, and so my specialty was that of dignitary protection, uh, protective service agency, PSA, they call it. The, the Army and the government is full of acronyms and acrostics, uh, and so as a special agent, we who were detailed to the Pentagon would provide dignitary protection for the secretaries of defense, secretaries of uh, army, and oftentimes intermingled with sex state and the president's detail. And many persons would look at us as being secret service, but we were military officers who did not wear uniforms and had pretty much the same role and had the training specific because we had to go to uh, the types of trainings that would be required of a uh, secret service agent, drug enforcer, et cetera, et cetera. What did you learn about yourself and about God? I learned that God was a great teacher. <laughs> he, he, he taught me to recognize where I was in whatever area or arena that I was in and to keep my feet grounded. What I mean by that, oftentimes when in these protective arenas, you're up close and personal, shoulder to shoulder with these dignitaries. Your job is to protect them. Your job is not to become friend uh, or develop a special relationship. And so therefore you have to make sure you maintain your distance, yet do what it is that you've been called to do. And hence was my area in ministry. I knew who I was and what I was called to do. I often found myself in churches uh, where the pastor of the church did not particularly want to bring me in as a minister in the church because the perception was I knew too much and I would be a threat to their livelihood in the church. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I knew to keep my distance. I knew that the flock was his flock and I allowed that to, to to happen. But I learned that from working within the dignitary arena. 
to make sure I kept my distance, uh, make sure I conveyed messages when I should convey a message and withheld when I should have withheld. And so it's just a lot of intermingling that happened there. But even on the bigger scale, providing dignitary protection around the world, uh, organizing security detail, motorcades, hotels, et cetera, et cetera, gave me a great deal of foundational knowledge of administration, which I had not had uh, before getting involved in church and church planting. So when I did my doctorate degree at Howard University, my doctorate degree was in church uh, administration and nonprofit organization. So the, the structure that I had gained organizing around the world, I was able to bring into the arena of the church. And I watched God, the great teacher. I, I know you say you recognize God's call to you since you were six, but mm -hmm. how was it then then go from being in such a structured environment as the military mm -hmm. into something as unstructured as the church? Uh -huh. How was it that that transition, and how did you know you were called to do that? Okay, that's, that's a very, very good question. I've always been a very structured person. Well, I can tell by looking as, at your, <laughs> at your, all your stuff here. Yes. <laughs> as, as, as a kid. And here's another component. I move when God says move. Okay. I stay when God says stay. If you've taken a look at, at my biographical sketch, you probably say, well, this guy, he could not have been here too long because now he's moved to this or he's moved to that. Well, I follow the leadership of God. And so in every one of my positions, I watched what God said do. And that in and of itself helped me to be able to develop, to be able to pour into, and to be able to receive um, in every aspect of my, my life. So it wasn't hard to leave the military then? It was not. It was not. Because again, I was always involved in ministry, even in the military, even as I would travel as far away to the outbacks so into Australia, uh, preaching in between mission assignments in foreign, on foreign turf, getting the opportunity to, to minister in Westminster, uh, walking, uh, and, and even one time I was on an assignment to Kuwait and uh, I broke out my Bible in the middle of the hotel and ministered to the staff there. Not a good thing to do. No. No, I would we'll not think so. We'll leave that right there. <laughs> you learned your lesson, but I'm yeah. curious, really, and in terms of theological framework, here you are, you know, protecting, working in, in pseudo-sacred service, protecting American dignitaries. And in that sense, if something were to happen, you're required to put your life on the line for them. And how would you reconcile that with Christ putting his life on the line for you? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's, a, that's, that's another good one. Um, that one kind of segues into a portion of the ministry that I do with regards to moral injury counseling. Um, my commitment to God has been strong since my early years. My commitment to my country became strong on the day that I took the oath to protect and defend. And out of that, I realized that what the government required of me, I had to render unto Caesar that which was Caesar or get out mm -hmm. of 
out of it. Yep. And so if it came down to tossing, and many times over it did, tossing my body in the position to take the bullet or to do a, a vehicle maneuver to ward off an attack, which might ultimately kill someone, that's my role. Now, how do I reconcile that with what my belief is? I was taught that, and even given a statement of preparation for that, when visiting with a uh, patient in a polytrauma unit in the hospital, many traumas to the head and body, more specifically to the head. And the, the man, when I walked into the room says, uh, I know you're the chaplain, I don't wanna talk to you. And I said, why? He says, I'm totally confused. He says, my grandmother took me to church every week and told me, thou shalt not kill. But I have killed so many people, it is bothering me. And I went through the process of helping him to understand his commitment to the government and how different that was in what he had been thinking about regarding what his grandmother had taught. We have to recognize that in life, in the life of the Christian, we will do some tearing down in order to build up. And sometimes, based on the commitment that we have to our government, it will require a task such as just that, uh, killing. Do we feel good about it? No. And do we wrestle with it? Yes. But do we recognize the allegiance to God and country? That's another totally different story. Give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Absolutely. And to Absolutely. God what belongs to God. So, um, you know, there's a lot of moral injury when it comes to mm -hmm. any kind of military service. I was a guerrilla soldier for six years. And, we, you know, so did you suffer from any kind of moral injury? I did not suffer from moral injury. Again, I, it's amazing the protection and the grace and mercy that God had shown upon me, to me, um, the caregiving. I'm out in the middle of a dark forest, of the Black Forest, as a matter of fact, in Southern Bavaria, uh, along with just me and a compass and the stars of the night. God provided comfort and encouragement. And so from the darkest to the streets of Manila, to Tegucigalpa, Honduras, where folks are walking the streets with machetes, et cetera, and my task was to say, take them out if they got too close, et cetera, et cetera. I, I have no moral envy. I have a commitment to God and country. Your mother's death, of course, triggered a lot of your change, and, and especially how your mother told you to go minister to everybody else but me. And, you know, that's a very wise woman. Yeah. Tell me more about mom, and then tell me how it was that, that her influence got you into hospice chaplaincy. Mm. Okay. Let me start. I, in one of my books that I've written, Be the Presence of God in Life's Trials and Transitions. On the backside of that book, there's a picture of a little boy that's sitting on my shoulder. That was me at about the age of six or seven, thereabout, where my mother would often accompany me to the bedsides of the elderly. I would share my passion and compassion that I needed to go and visit with Mr. Chester. I needed to go with Mr. Tom and see how he's doing. 
and I would do that. And she would go along with me. <laughs> and she was a single parent mom mm. from my age of two. And so I received my instructions and my model for life from her strong guidance and commitment and dedication. As a matter of fact, when I received my doctorate degree, instead of me taking ownership of my robe and my hood, I gave it to her Wow! in the ceremony. Mm -hmm. And that's just what she, she meant. That's just the model that she meant. She gave her life that I might have it. And she didn't get the education. She had an eighth grade education. Yeah. But in her, she was a doctor to me. Yeah, exactly. And, and so it's out of that. Mm -hmm. Her strong uh, foundation of faith, her strong commitment, and her helping in the process of me developing in the early stages. And so now, at the age of five and six, I didn't have the clue of what hospice was. Sure. But God was preparing me for hospice mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it was the hospice age and the hospice folks that I was visiting. And I had no fear. I had no, I mean, I, I enjoyed it Absolutely. because I was doing something for them. Mm -hmm. And throughout my life, I knew that when I, whenever I would come home from the military on my visit, she would send me to visit somebody else. <laughs> and, and that was so frustrating. That was so frustrating. One time I, I come and, and I'm out on my jog, my morning jog, and I'm into that second wind and I'm getting ready to take this hill. And there was a gentleman I, I made mention just a few minutes ago, Mr. Chester. Mr. Chester lived on the corner at the top of the hill and he shouts out to me, hey, Steve, come over here. Now, my name is Philip. But if he's going to, <laughs> but if he, if, if he, he, he called me Steve, it, it, well, okay, that's not a problem. I go over and I sit and I talk with Mr. Chester because that's what I do. And he's got diabetes, his legs are swollen, et cetera. And he says, listen, you've become a, a pretty good boy around here. You've gone off to the military and look like you're developing into a good man. He says this to me, here is a life lesson. He didn't say here's life lessons, but this is what it came out. He says, never compromise yourself and never let anyone compromise you. Well, that statement had meaning and significance when he imparted it, but it had greater meaning four hours later when I was driving from Kentucky back to DC and my mother calls and says, Mr. Chester just died. Yep. Never compromise yourself and never let anyone compromise you shaped and formed in my mother's instruction and direction and her seeing and discerning the call of the Lord upon me, making sure that I would do what God says do and follow, she followed his leadership through me. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Saul Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Dr. Phil, a man of uh, tremendous devotion. It's obvious that your mother modeled pastoral care for you and what was the role of your dad in that modeling my father was an alcoholic 
he was a man who was committed to caring for his mother and his father. When he and my mother separated at, when I was two, I've never imparted this information to, to anyone. Saw, so I don't know what in the world you've done here, but <laughs> anyway, you, you snuck this in on me. <laughs> anyway, so when my dad went to stay with his mother, he actually lived with his mother and his father until such time as their death. And watching him and his commitment to his mother and father gave me encouragement above and beyond to take care of my mother and to take care of him. In the last days of his life, I went to visit with him in the hospital. Just like the wall of Jericho, I sat there and I walked around that hospital for seven days. On the seventh day, I took a deep breath about the seventh time around, basically. I said, God, what do you want me to do? And I said to my dad, uh, you seem to be progressing, but I want to stay with you until you're okay. He says to me, no, you go back to Texas and you do what God said do. You heard that before when I just shared with you about my mom. You go yeah. back and you do what God said do. Yeah. I get back to Texas and the very next morning I get a call from his doctor. Mr. Williams, I'm sorry to say, but your dad died last night. And out of that, I get the challenge again to do what God said do. Mm. My very call to ministry, I heard and I saw that phrase in a dream. I very was a very advocate watcher of the program, television program, The Wheel of Fortune. Mm. <laughs> and so um, uh, I came out of investigating one day and I was extremely tired, and, but I laid down to get a good night's sleep. But in the middle of the night, I'm seeing this wheel turn around and around. And I couldn't fathom what was on the, the, the spokes of the, of the wheel. Like the Wheel of Fortune, it had numbers. But then on this one, it began to say, do what thus saith the Lord. And just as clear as I am talking to you. And so I set up in the middle of the bed at 2.22 in the morning because of the illumination of the light, uh, I was able to get the time. And, and it was saying, do what thus saith the Lord. Now, what does that mean? I've been wrestling with the call to preach the gospel. I've been wrestling to, about coming into full-time ministry. So now this is on Thursday, on, Friday, on Wednesday night. So on Thursday night at our church in Northern Virginia, we had prayer meeting. So at the middle of prayer meeting, when it came to testimony time, they said, does anyone have a testimony? And I stood up and said, I, you know, I've had this dream and I've been called to the ministry. And all I know, I know that I need to do is do what thus saith the Lord. And I said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's called me to preach the gospel to the poor and bring hope to the brokenhearted. And out of that, from that point on, 1987, after accepting that call and yielding to doing what God said to do, my mother echoed the same thing. My dad echoed the same thing. The spirit echoed the same thing. I can't do anything but do what God says. So what were your next steps? When my dad died, and again, the question relative to all of that hinged back to him. When, when he died, this was a man of much compassion. If I disrespected it, if I talked down to someone, 
he'd express his, his hurt almost to the point of tears. Don't do that. Be nice to someone. Do this to that person, etc. And so out of all of his feelings, I developed that kind of heart. My mother was a strong authoritarian. <laughs> but, but, but out of, out of him, I, I did that. And so that uh, catapulted me into the arena of ministry in a special way by looking from the vantage point of, you don't have all the answers, my friend. You, you, you need to be kind. You need to be kinder. See, persons with the spiritual gift that I have of administration, oftentimes the project becomes more important than the people. And so I have to stay more in contact, in contact with who I am and whose I am and where I came from. I came from a man, a father, who was a caring person. And God is likewise. And so how did that help me and catapult me in, into ministry? And where, where does all that come from? I just kept following his lead and kept watching what God was saying do. And I just walked by faith and stepped into it. And in 19 and, oh, I believe it's like 85, I began to, to do study at Liberty University uh, to prepare myself even more for ministry. Uh, with all this training and all these life experiences, how would you define now your theology of pastoral care? Mm -hmm. One is to know without a shadow of a doubt that God is whatever I want him to be. God is who he is because of who he is. And I'm just taken back to uh, the dialogue between Moses and God, uh, when God sent him out, who shall I say sent me? You know, I am that I am did this. And I think that in all that I say and do, I have to lean and depend on God and that which he has made and given me. I can't do that apart from embodying myself with the 66 books of his word and the collective of gifts, talents, and special abilities. I've got to lean and depend on God because he is who he is. You know, before starting recording and as we we're reading through your biographical sketch, and uh, to our listeners, I'll have it on. <laughs> uh, it'll be with this episode uh, on our website. And the first question, uh, Joe and I were talking, and, and I asked, um, Dr. Phil has done so much. Uh, what was he running from to be so active like this? But now, after talking to you, I realized you were running towards God's call for your life. Mm -hmm. And you know what, my friend? You've run well. You know, that's, that's, that's a good statement and a way to, to, to culminate this. I have a, a purpose in life statement, and that is to redeem the time. To let my speech be always with salt, always with grace, seasoned with salt, that I might know how to answer every man. I redeem the time. That's what I do. Blessings, my Thank friend. Thank you very much. Great to meet you. My pleasure. God bless you guys. All right. Bye. Bye now. This 
podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. 